I'm Mel. I'm Tiff. And we're on Pump. Welcome back, dear listeners, to another captivating episode of On Pump. Mel and I are thrilled to have you join us once again as we embark on a journey of insight and inspiration. Isn't it fascinating how chance encounters and unexpected events can shape the course of our lives, leading us to extraordinary places and people? In our previous episode, we had the pleasure of delving into the incredible story of Bob Groom, a true visionary in the field of perfusion. Today, we pick up right where we left off, ready to continue unraveling the serendipitous moments that led Bob to his extraordinary work in Africa and exploring the day in the life of this remarkable individual. Bob's journey is a testament to the power of following one's passion and embracing unexpected opportunities. His dedication and unwavering commitment have not only transformed countless lives, but have also become a source of inspiration for perfusionists worldwide. So without further ado, Let's join Bob Groom as he guides us through a typical day in his extraordinary life, shedding light on the challenges, the triumphs, and the endless inspiration that drives him forward. I kind of want to take this opportunity because your John H. Gibbon Lecture Award was so moving. And I got goosebumps when you talked about finding your element, being in a place where your true talents and passions came together. But really the ripple that ran through me came when you talked about how you and your wife had this dream of going to Africa before you made it there. This was not a decision that was on a whim. This was a dream that you guys carried through your marriage for years. And I almost cried when I saw that piece that you talked about when you looked at the 12 year old boy that had rheumatic heart disease and he was in heart failure and you could see his heart coming out of his chest. And when he looked at you, you saw that mix of desperation and hope in his eyes and you called home. And what you said was that you saw your uncle. Uh, Three, um, three uncles that died. I think one was nine, one was 13, one was 22. He got a Huffnagel valve. You remember the Huffnagel valve was the one that's implanted in the descending thoracic aorta before they had hard lung machines. And Mel, that, uh, thanks for pointing that out. But, you know, My wife and I had this dream. I can't explain why, but we have always loved this continent and the people here. We met a lot of immigrants here over the years, immigrants to the U.S., and a lot of churches we've been in, missionaries in Africa, and we, we felt really called here and pulled here. But when we were in our 20s and 30s and 40s and even 50s, we 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 did some mission trips, but never a medical mission. And this place is there's not another place in the world that's a better fit for Bob Groom. And we've talked about experiences I've had, and all of those experiences now are they were for a purpose. They were for a purpose in what I'm doing now, and it's. It's just so incredible to us that we waited all those years. It didn't happen. We thought it never would happen. And then it finally did. In 2008, something happened to me. I was working at Maine Medical Center. I was director of perfusion. And in one month, the president of the hospital resigned. And 
the vice president of cardiovascular services resigned. And, and at that time, Maine Medical Center didn't have a really good secession plan. I was asked to be vice president of the cardiovascular service line. And I said, okay, I can, I can do that for six months. And they said, no, no, we want you to do it until we get to a point where we can really fill that position. And for four years and five months, I was responsible for eight cath labs and cardiac rehab and non-invasive cardiology and cardiac surgery and all those different departments. And it was a nightmare. It was a nightmare for me. I still ran the perfusion department. I was the director. I had good people under me that, that kept that department running very well. But that experience, I never understood why. And I probably had more anxiety and I probably had, my health was probably worse than it had ever been. Dealing with angry cardiologists and some dysfunctional teams in some areas and having to plan, having to set up a TAVR program and having to deal with all this equipment upgrades and everything. And after that five years or four years and six months of doing that, they told me, we're going to post this position. Don't apply for it. We're going to post it. And, you know, and I was kind of hurt, you know, they didn't ask me to apply for it at the time, but it was the best thing that ever happened to me going back to my department and being in perfusion full time. And that experience, now we're building a 175-bed cardiac hospital here on this campus, and we're, we're going to have seven procedure rooms. We're going to have five cardiac and thoracic rooms, a cath lab and a hybrid room, and 48 ICU beds. And we have to hire 400 people, and we have to figure out how to do this and make it cost-effective. And those four and a half years, I learned a lot about how to do that. And I, I never really understood that, why I went through that in my career. But I think God and his providence put me in that position back then to teach me things that would lend to what I'm doing doing right now. Yeah, thanks for pointing that out. And it's my wife and I were a little bit angry at God that he didn't bring us here when we were younger. We were a little <laughs> 6,300 feet above sea level. And it's so in the huff and puff and try to make our way around here with our, our old joints and stuff. But, but we absolutely love it here. And this is the, it's the best place on this planet for Holly and Robert Groom right here in Bomet, Kenya. And we're just thrilled to be here. And it was a dream. And who would ever think that would come true when I was 64 years old, 65 years old, I'm 67 now, and I just just love it here. And I want to finish my career here. I want to leave everything on the field here. I want to just do all I can to develop the school and help the country develop their standards. And that's my goal, to, to hang on for a few more years, maybe three more years, and see some of the things accomplished here, to see a sustainable program we're training surgeons. We have a CT, we have a cardiothoracic fellowship program here, a three-year fellowship. So we're training heart surgeons here. We've trained five. I've trained five perfusionists so far. Right now we have a fellow from Rwanda and we have a perfusion student that started in July. 
from Rwanda. And Tiffany, you've been on some mission trips, so you can understand the value of these two going back to Rwanda, to King Faisal Hospital, both having been trained together, it will really help that program to be sustainable. I've had inquiries from six or seven countries in sub-Saharan Africa. Can we send people to train? And the goal is over the next five years, we'll train 22 perfusionists, 12 to work in other countries and 10 to work at our center here. It's really exciting journey. And thank God for bringing me to this place. Yeah, Bob, you definitely hit the nail on the head with the word sustainability. I think that's the biggest part of the whole picture with mission trips in my little experience. But it's very cool to hear it reiterated from you and your particular experience. And you definitely also answered my upcoming question on what led you to pursue this opportunity. I think that is, again, very inspirational that you followed your intuition and it led to a great place. And it's great to know that things just happen for a reason. And sometimes you're in a hard place and you go through that challenge then. But a few years later, you're like, wow, this is where I'm meant to be. That's really a great feeling and very great to hear that it's worked out for you. Yeah, it's really interesting. I watched a presentation by Dr. Keith Dindy. It was a recording on the AATS website from their meeting in Boston. And it was really fascinating, some of the points that he had to say, but the publication that is attached to that presentation talked about how doctors set out to actually analyze sustainability and the growth of cardiac surgery in other countries. And they talked about how you can do 100 mission trips, but at the end of the day, when you stop going, surgery stops happening. So really, it's to me, it was like, so fascinating because they're over there doing this huge analysis and you're just like you're packing your bag you're going to kenya and you decide to take this route and it just happens to be the most efficient route to create sustainability that they came up with out of their paper and that was to create that perfusion program there and to be a grassroots initiative to sit there to stay there to train to grow it to have patience with it through its tribulations But yeah, and the other thing he said too that was interesting, I don't know, I'd love to hear your comments on this, was that I think this plays well to the U.S. as well as Kenya. He said, for a long time, us doctors had tunnel vision and we worried about the clinical work. And it wasn't until we realized that we had to pick our heads up and get out of the operating room and into the boardroom to negotiate and lobby government to really start seeing the fruits of the labor that they're putting in there. So Kenya is one of the few countries that have successfully lobbied government for recognition, for funding. They created the NHIF, which is a national health insurance fund that helps fund these hospitals and these surgeries for patients. So I'd love to hear your thoughts on Kenya, KSECT, the USA, and how perfusion needs to get out of the operating room, out of their bubble in order to grow the profession going forward. Well, thank you, Mel. That's that's a good question. That's a it's a big question. And Keith Dendy is he finished our fellowship program and he passed the boards. He passed the the African board cardiothoracic surgery boards, and he's a fantastic guy. And he's right. It takes a partnership with government to to accomplish this. And and we need we need people to come from the U.S., from developed countries to, to help as well. It's so important that when people come, 
we have a lot of visitors that come here now. And in the beginning, we only did surgery when visitors came here. I started coming here around 2012 for a month or two weeks here and there with different surgeons and different teams from around the U.S. But some people that come, you're getting ready to go on this trip and you got in your mind, I'm going to go there and I'm going to pump this case, this case. I'm going to do this case and I'm going to do these cases. I'm going to do these big cases and I'm, I can't wait to pump a case. I can't wait to do that. And some surgeons come and oh, look at this. This is 11 centimeter ascending aneurysm. It's like the biggest one I've ever seen. And I'm going to go there and I'm going to repair that aneurysm. And I can't wait when these juicy cases come and some of the visitors come and they want to do that. But the best thing that they can do the best thing they could do is teach. The best thing they could do is stand alongside that surgeon for a surgeon that comes and whisper in his ear, okay, that bite was a little big. The next one, take it a little bit smaller. And that's, the stitch needs to be closer. Tomorrow, Lau Joyce will be here. And that man is, he's my hero. He comes here two or three times a year. And he's always on the left side of the table, or he's behind the resident that's doing the surgery and whispering in his ear. And if he gets in trouble, he, you know, he takes over and he does that. I think coming with an attitude that you're going to listen and you're going to teach others and let others do, I think that would be my advice to a visiting team. If you're coming on a visiting team, of course, you have to assess the situation. If they've never done a case, you're going to be pumping that case. But to teach as much as you can, you'll find people that are eager to learn. Identify those people and just really invest your time in becoming their friends and teaching them and helping them to learn is so important. And also to Keith is right. We have to work and we have to push the government we do have an established national insurance here, NHIF, and it's, it costs about $70 a year for someone to be part of that insurance plan. And it pays about $4,500 for an open heart procedure. So patients are still out of pocket a lot. And it's important we work hard to work on reform and getting funding and helping helping people like Keith Dindy to to go out and be leaders and to talk to politicians and people that work in the government about how healthcare can be improved and showing them the problem and showing them how it can be improved. That's so important. It's so important. But to, to get to that sustainability and we operate all year round here on adults and we'll do patients that are maybe 20 kilos and up here. If we have a patient that's having frequent TET spells, we'll do it if it's a if it's an infant that's having TET spells. But the rest of the time, we're, when we have congenital cases that are smaller than 20 kilos, we wait till we have a team like the team from Mayo or Vanderbilt or, or Boston Children's or Maine Medical Center, those teams that come to do those cases. And eventually, we will have sustainability for the congenital 
side of it. I think that the most important thing that perfusionists can do, a lot of perfusionists have a passion to come and serve and to help others. The most important thing you can do is to not have any expectations when you get on that plane and just just say, wherever I can be of help, wherever you can use me, and ask a lot of questions of the people and ask how you can help them. One tool that's underutilized right now is having a lot of communication before you visit a center. And you can Zoom with, with a team or you can Zoom with a center and you can ask questions. And you can tell a lot from the look on people's faces when they answer those questions. I've been asked to help a lot of programs when they have visiting teams. And some I have had to say, I'm sorry, I can't help you because I don't think you're prepared well to do this. You want to go to this hospital in this country, in this city in Africa and operate, but that team doesn't have the resources to take care of the patient you operate on. And who's going to follow that patient up? And so if you're going to go there and you're going to do an operation and this patient is going to clot that valve, they won't be able to get INRs and they won't be able to get... So you may feel good that you went there and you did some cases, but if they don't have the recovery room staff, if they don't have the infrastructure, you've done more harm than good. So asking a lot of questions of the team that you're going with, and there are a lot of great organizations that that do this work a lot, and they figured out which hospitals to partner with, but you'll get some people that will plead with you to come and bring equipment and bring people. And sometimes you just have to say, I don't think this is a good idea. But so to research the group you're going with, to have connections with the team, to know what the resources are like there, the people you'll be working with. And with today's technology, with Teams and with Zoom, you can interact a lot with a center and you can help the center a lot, even from afar. During COVID, I wasn't able to come here for about eight months and two days a week, we had classes by Zoom. And so there's technology and you can do a lot of things from afar as well. So anyway, I don't know if that answers your question, but it, it's absolutely right. There was a study done on a program in Nigeria after the things settled down there politically a few years ago, they decided they were going to re-initiate re this program in Nigeria. And I think they had something like 30 teams that visited this program and operated over a four or five-year period. And they did an analysis after that, that five-year period. And there's some graphics in that paper that show that the number of times that the local surgeons were primary or even assisting in the operation. It was just a paucity of cases that they got to do that. And so then you visit there 30 times, but they don't get to learn and actually do the cases. And then the program stalls, you know, and it's no wonder it stalls. But finding that, that confidence and finding that courage to allow the local team 
to do the operations with your help is it's very challenging to do that but we've got to find that sweet spot and we've got to help and do the do things when we need to do them but to be behind people and to guide them to the extent that it's possible Bob, I think that's a very healthy boundary to set, to be aware of how much you can help and when you can't. I often see institutions in the United States even struggle, you know, saying we we can do this next case, we can continue on. And sometimes it doesn't always have the best result. And I guess I'm just curious, just to give us a little bit of context, can you walk us through a day in the life of Bob Groom in Kenya? Yeah. <laughs> I get to the OR at seven, and I'm usually the first one there, or or Stephen, who is a CRNA that 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 gives the anesthesia. He and I are the first first two people there, and I'll usually pull equipment for the case and start setting up the pump, and then usually around seven forty five, the perfusion team, the perfusionists I've trained, will show up, and I'll break away, and I'll I'll have a cup of chai. And I'll have a mandazi. And mandazi is a, it's like the Dunkin' Donuts, old-fashioned donut, only it doesn't have a hole in it. It's a pastry. So I'll have my chai and mandazi. And 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 Philip and Anacius will set up the pump. And so the other perfusionists will compound the cardioplegia. And and then we'll, 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 the patient will be prepped. And we'll all be there for the timeout. And I usually don't pump a case. I'll only pump a case when there's a shortage of people or if we have an ECMO. We've done a couple of ECMOs here. I don't leave the hospital when we have a patient on ECMO. But so then I'll be in the room, standing in the back of the room behind the perfusionist. And when we go on pump and just start feeling really good when you know everything's working and we'll cool and we'll give the cardioplegia and put the clamp on. And then I'll maybe drift away and and I'll be about 50 feet away. I'll be working on the curriculum or working on supply things and all that. We have a simulation lab here. Now we have a Califia simulator. And so maybe working on some scenarios for the students in simulation. And I'll usually come back in the room when the clamp's coming off and then maybe be around when we come off pump. So that's a typical day for me. I work beside the staff I work with. I'll teach and mentor during the case some, but it's pretty. It's pretty nice schedule. It really is. It's not too demanding usually. And when teams come, it can be stressful because you know a team comes from the U.S. and oh, do I have enough quarter three eights wise? That could be pretty stressful sometimes and. When teams come, a team will come and they'll want to do two cases a day in our one room. And these will all be big cases because so a patient gets a patient comes to the hospital and presents with their cardiac disease when they're in heart failure. And it's not like the US where you've had a murmur or a little bit of fatigue and you get worked up, but these patients will come in stage two, stage three heart failure and their their left atrium, the ones with valvular disease, their left atrium will be gigantic. Some of them will already have had a stroke from a clot in the LA. Last year, two patients had amputations. A nine-year-old boy had a leg amputated before surgery. He got wet gangrene of his leg from a thrombus from his left atrium. And another 28-year-old woman 
She had her leg amputated one week and a week later, we repaired her. We replaced her mitral valve. Anyway, I'm in the background. I'm there to be called on if there's a problem and to mentor. And that's a day in my life right now. When teams come, when we do two cases, it can be long days. It can be from six in the morning till two in the morning because some of these teams, they want to do two cases. And quite frankly, that's not always the right thing to do because the people you're working beside here, they might have to walk 40 minutes to get home. They might have to go and to a borehole or go to the river and get water. They might have to build a wood fire and cook their meal. And you, if you have those people working 12 or 14 hours a day, it really has a toll on them. We have long days like that. Probably the most stressful thing is to not have a team coming and being worried that, do I have enough cannulas? Do I have enough vents? Do I have enough connectors? And all those things. And sometimes I'll spend... 30 minutes looking for a connector. <laughs> but I always find one. I always, always <laughs> find one. Just uh, two years ago, it was Thursday, and we had a team there for two weeks. And this was the second week. It was Thursday morning. And I wanted it to be Friday so bad. I wanted it to be Friday. And I needed a 3 eighths quarter connector. And I'd gone through my whole pump room, and I couldn't find one. So... I had to go down to the storeroom in the basement and I was just, I was, I just did not want to be there. I felt so awful and I couldn't find this connector. And so I walked out of the OR and I walked down the hall and I had to go through the ward to get to this supply room. And as I'm walking down the hallway, there's this lady walking towards me and I look at her into her face and she's smiling. And it's Elizabeth and she had like a 10 centimeter aortic aneurysm, and we had done a, an arch replacement on her the week before. And just looking into her face, everything just disappeared. All of my fatigue and my frustration and all that disappeared. And it was like I had a full tank of gas and could go the rest of the day. <laughs> Um, that's what a day's like. And when it really gets hard, I think about a patient. I think about a child that we operated on or, or an adult that we operated on that, that was able to have their life on a new trajectory. And I think that's what keeps all of us going here is when it gets really tough. I'm sure it's the same way for you in the U.S. as well. You have a bad one and you've got to think about that patient, That uh, think about that win and that 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 gets you keeps you going. So that's a day in my life, pretty much. Yeah, there are definitely a lot of humbling aspects of our job. But I think you painted a such a beautiful perspective of what it's like for the Kenyan people, as well, and going through those struggles of not being in a developed country. So there's definitely a lot more variables that you have to take into account. And I just want to say it sounds like you have some really good key players on your side with the Mayo team. I know, Lyle Joyce will be the most patient, kind human in letting you find that connector and giving you the time <laughs> you need exactly. to retrieve that. So I think it sounds like you're in good hands. <laughs> yeah, speaking to that, you were such a big part of that blood conservation guidelines publication. Like your name's on there. You helped with that. You authored that as well. You're in that task force. What does that aspect look like in Kenya? Do you have some sort of a blood bank set up? Or do you frequently have cases where 
you could have used cryo, you could have used platelets, you could have used recombinant factors, but they're not available. Does that aspect get frustrating at all? Like, how do you guys manage that? That's interesting, Mel. It's an interesting question. And I don't have a cell saver here. And so, um, you know, I mean, and I'm, I'm telling you about these big, huge aneurysms and cases. And, and 10 years ago, I would think, we can't do a case. We don't have a cell saver. And we don't have cryo. And we don't have recombinant factor seven. We don't have all that stuff. We can get FFP now. We can get platelets. I can't fractionate blood. I can't get PRP and that sort of thing. So I don't have a cell saver. I'll have a cell saver soon. That's challenging. But there are other approaches, though, that are very effective. One of the things that we do have is we have whole blood. And whole blood is amazing. Whole blood is amazing. And fresh whole blood, really, really amazing. And last January, we did a LV aneurysm, a patient from the Congo that was flown here with a huge left ventricular aneurysm. And we operated on this guy, John, and he wouldn't stop bleeding. At midnight, Bob Kramer, a friend of mine, a retired surgeon from Maine who was here, he and I walked over the blood bank. And they drew a unit of blood from each of us, and we carried it back over to the OR, and we gave it to Jean, and he stopped bleeding. That's fresh whole blood is amazing. And the Aswan Heart Center that I mentioned to you before, they they don't have tags. They don't have all of the, the fractionated blood products and these modern things that we can get now to stop bleeding. But this is how they do surgery. The patient is in the operating room. And when the clamp comes off and they start to rewarm, the anesthesiologist picks up the telephone and he calls the blood bank. And they bring a donor into the blood bank and they draw a unit of blood from the donor. And then by the time they come off pump, this fresh unit of whole blood arrives in the operating room and they give the patient that blood. And it just might be better than all the tags and all the fancy things that we have in the world. All those things are good, but this is certainly less expensive. It's a little bit challenging to coordinate, but a Swan Heart Center has figured it out, and I'm just so amazed by the work they're doing. And, and someday we hope to implement a program like that here, but we don't have all the resources. But sometimes you find out that you don't need all those resources. You don't need some of the things that you think you need. And there are other solutions like fresh, warm blood. So, Bob, how does that work for your pediatric population as well? using whole blood? It it works pretty well. It works pretty well, Tiffany. Some of the, the challenges are, tomorrow morning we're going to operate on a 13-year-old girl and her hematocrit is 70, I think. And that'll be a challenging case to, to sequester blood and to, we're going to have an abundance of red cells and the platelet counts on these patients is usually low. It's usually some as low as 90, but some as high as 190 because all their stem cells are making red cells and not platelets. 
So it's challenging. This week, we have arranged for fresh Roseland plasma for the cases that we have. We really don't operate on neonates here. The smallest patient we operated on here was a four and a half kilogram patient with a paramembranous VSD. But in general, whole blood works works pretty well. Our whole blood is not as fresh as the blood of a swan. Then on occasion, we'll go over and give a fresh unit and do that in a pinch. But I think a lot of centers in the U.S., a lot of PD centers would like to have whole blood for priming and that sort of thing. So it's a challenge. Our blood supply is a challenge here. Our OB department uses a lot of blood here for difficult cases that they have. I really want to get a cell saver for them soon, sooner. A call will go out that we've got a woman that has a hemoglobin of two um, that's just had an ectopic pregnancy or a difficult delivery. And it's it's probably every two weeks, uh, we have a WhatsApp group here on the campus of all the global workers here. And, you know, a call will go out. We've got a lady with a hemoglobin of two, hemoglobin of four. We need blood, any A positive, any O positive out there. And so staff will donate in those cases. But it, so blood supply is a challenge. Yeah, I was going to say that was one of my interests there. I was astounded when I heard there was a 65% prevalence rate of mitral stenosis. On the U.S., you hear a lot about mitral regurgitation, but not so much mitral stenosis. And they talked about having to implant valves in these populations. And I just kept thinking about women of childbearing ages needing a valve replacement, having difficulty with monitoring INRs, how long does a bioprosthetic versus a mechanical last? And then if they get pregnant, the constraints of maybe getting a potential cardiomyopathy, having a complication of if you are anticoagulated and you're giving birth and it's not a smooth childbirth, then you're hemorrhaging. So, you know, what happens? Do you see any of those patients there? And knowing now that you don't have a cell saver, my heart goes out to that population because that's terrifying. Mel, you've really hit the nail on the head. That's the dilemma here is that particularly girls, particularly young girls that develop rheumatic heart disease. So our valve disease here is totally different than the U.S. It's mostly rheumatic and it's mostly rheumatic heart disease. And that's an autoimmune disease. And the valve tissue gets destroyed by this. The bacteria causes some of the T cells and macrophages to get confused and they attack the valve tissue and they destroy the valve tissue over time. The patient has this cycle of inflammation and they keep having inflammation and that valve gets calcified and it gets stiff. And most of them need to be replaced. And if you've got a woman, a young girl or a woman, a 12-year-old girl, a lot of our patients are between 9 and 25 years old with rheumatic heart disease. And so if you're be, if you're less than 18, it's not wise to put a bioprosthesis in because in four years, it'll be calcified. So you have to put a mechanical valve in and they have to be on Coumadin and they have to be monitored just as you've said. And recently, there are a few surgeons that have been developing techniques to repair rheumatic valves. And our friends at a Swan Heart Center, Dr. Mahmoud Afifi there has come here and he's taught us a course on how to 
repair some of these rheumatic valves. And and it's not a pretty looking operation, but it seems to be that these valves can be repaired in some cases and they can be durable enough to last for 10 years. If you're able to repair a mitral valve in a child, in a 12-year-old child, and they get 10, 12, 14 years, you might get them through their first pregnancy or second pregnancy. And better yet, probably in 10 or 12 years, there'll be a good catheter-based valve that we can deploy and replace that mitral valve. But you put a mechanical valve in, then you're going to need surgical replacement. So we're doing some of these repairs, and we've done a series of six so far, and we're continuing to learn that technique and improve that technique. And it will get some of these women, some of these young girls through their years of their early pregnancy. Then when a patient, a pregnant patient comes in, that's another challenge. A few years back, we had a 26-year-old woman who was in, she was well into the third trimester and she had severe mitral stenosis. I think her her left atrial pressure when we measured it was about 26 or 28. And so we did a closed commissurotomy on her. Instead of putting her on bypass, we did a left thoracotomy. And we did an operation from the 1940s, the closed commissurotomy. And we did that. And two months later, she sent me a picture of her daughter. And so it was just like, wow, that was so cool. And and she has, this is, it's been six years since we did that case. And she hasn't been back. So that commissurotomy has carried her for a few years. So using creative techniques like that, we do some balloon valvuloplasties here as well. But the open commissurotomy is one that we've done more often than the balloon valvuloplasty. But you're so right that having the right approach for children so you don't commit them to a life on anticoagulants and a future replacement of a mechanical valve. A mechanical valve will last 40 or 50 years. It's very durable if you can manage the anticoagulation well. We've implanted a lot of onyx valves, which seem to have a really good profile for being free of thrombus and I know there have been a couple studies that have looked at managing those patients just on Persantin and aspirin instead of Coumadin. And so there's a little bit of promise there, but it's a challenge figuring out the best approach for those patients. The extent of your work definitely says a lot about you. And it's amazing what you're doing for the people of Kenya and in treating those diseases like rheumatic heart disease that are more prevalent in that area. And I did notice that the clock did pass midnight and I, I noticed we didn't <laughs> make you fall asleep yet. So that's good. But I just wanted to check in on you. It sounds like you have a really early morning. We definitely have more questions, very in-depth questions, but we don't want to torture you. So <laughs> this has been fun talking with you. And if you'd like to continue for a few more minutes, I'm okay with that. But it's been very gratifying to talk with you guys. You really are good at interviewing people and <laughs> You draw us out. You get us to to talk. So, <laughs> I guess I just wanted to ask on a closing note, what advice would you give to aspiring perfusionists who are just starting their careers or what advice would you give to new leaders building their perfusion programs? I would say in starting your career, there are a lot of 
opportunities and places you can work and just be very thoughtful about where you where you go to work. Early in your career, I would advise people to be wise like the two of you. You've both gone to very busy centers early on in your career. Mayo Clinic and, and Presbyterian Hospital are very busy centers. And it's an opportunity to learn. <clears throat> and I would say that that's the important thing is finding a place to work where you can do a lot of cases and learn from really good people that I'm thinking of that book. It takes 10,000, doing something 10,000 times to really become good at it. So early in your career, I would advise going to a very busy place and going to a place where there are people that you can learn from. And to do that, it's, it's not always about the money. It's not always about how much call those things are important. Location is important based on your family and your extended family. I would say choose wisely and about where you would go there. This is a great time to be starting your career. There's so many opportunities out there. So somebody was starting a new program. I would encourage you to network. You guys being involved in the committee that you're on, you get exposure to a lot of leaders like yourself that that can really become people that you can talk to and ask questions and ask career advice of. It's a small field. It's a small community. And if you're interested in working someplace, you can find somebody that has worked there or is working there that can give you advice on things. For somebody that's starting a program, that second part of the question, Tiffany, I would say just having a network of people that you can call and ask for advice is very valuable. Early in my career, when I was involved in the AACP, there were so many people that I could pick up the phone and call if I had a question. Ian Shearer at Duke and Joe Sestino and Bill Dubois and many people. So being involved in your society and volunteering where you can be around those people is so valuable, particularly if you're doing something like you're doing, Tiff, and starting a new program, to have made those relationships where people know you and are willing to share. That's one of the nice things about people in our field. They're willing to share their experiences and give you guidance. So I'm really impressed with the leadership program that MSEC puts on. That Kenny Shan started a few years ago. It's a phenomenal opportunity to be around leaders like Dave Fitzgerald and Kenny Shan and Rob Baker and others, and to and to read a book together and to have discussion together. I think that's really valuable. As I mentioned to you in the beginning, it was having a mentor like like Aaron Hill or Mark Caruso that really helped me early in my career. I just have to ask one final question coming off of what you're saying, because it's so true. You don't get anywhere alone. And having really strong mentors that have traveled the path and have had to go through their obstacles on their own sometimes throughout their career and their journey, it takes a lot out of you. You might come out smart and resilient and intelligent and persevere, but it might really take a lot out of you to do it on your own. 
So I agree, like it's so important to find people that are strong and have done it and have the energy and want to teach you how to do it too. And let you fall when you want to fall and help you get back up after you realize that you're not so independent. (laughs) Talking about Kenya, you know, and all the key stakeholders, they all come back to transfer of knowledge. And you're quite a formidable individual in perfusion stateside and as well in Kenya internationally for a long time. What tools, techniques, resources, like have you identified anybody there or anybody stateside that you would want to mentor to step into your role when you're ready to step away there to continue the work that you started? Absolutely. A very important point, Mel, is that in our professional lives, we always need to be thinking about who we work with and who we hire and who's going to replace us and who's going to be the next person that's serving on some of the committees that you guys are on. And that is is so important. And the first two guys I trained, they will be the leaders. They will be carrying this program on. And we talk about that a lot. And and so every decision that's made, I ask them, what would you do? How do you think we should handle this? How many students do you think we should enroll next year? And we talk about that. And probably 80% of the time, they get it right. And a few percentage of the time, they get me to change my mind. They give me a new perspective. And it's an opportunity for them to virtually lead and get practice in making decisions and things like that. And that's been an important thing to me. My whole career is that so often I see in organizations that you have a leader and they lead and there's no thought about secession planning. There's no thought about who's going to come in next and lead. And being thoughtful about that. And a year before I was leaving Maine Medical Center, I I let the hospital know I'm leaving in a year. And the person that was senior perfusionist there, he accompanied me on just about every meeting that I had that year. And every challenge, every budget, every everything that I put together, we did that together. And I would ask him, what do you think? How do you think we should manage that? And as it turned out, he applied for my old job and he was hired. And uh, and that program didn't skip a beat. Just recently, they were awarded the Pillar Award. I was so proud of them. I was so proud of them. And the CEO of that hospital just sent me a letter. It's been four years since I retired. And he said, thank you. We know that the foundation that you laid, the leadership principles that you passed on that were reaping the benefit of that. And so I was really moved that he felt that way. But I think that's important for all of us to think about is to prepare for the future. There's a book that I really like. It's about character. And it's written by David. He's a news writer. I can't think of his name. But he said that we're placed on this earth And it's not as though we're dropped into this open field and we should do whatever we want to do. He said, people of character, they look at the world, they look at their environment, 
And they try to take what has been left there from the people who came before them and take those gifts and take those things from the people before them and make it better and then pass it on to the next generation. But it's a beautiful quote that I love. And I thought that's so true. You know, we think, oh, I just graduated. I can go to work anywhere and I'm going to go to a place and where has the least amount of call and the most amount of pay and that sort of thing. And I'm going to go to that, that meeting in Florida where I can get these points and go to Disney. And there's some people that really think that way. But I'm impressed with the two of you. I can tell that you are trying to make things better through your involvement and the projects you're involved with and the way you've managed your career. We just need more people like you guys that will look at the gifts that were left by the people that came before us and take those gifts and make them better and pass them on to the people that come after us. So, yeah, that's what it's all. I think that book was The Road to Character by David Brooks. That's it, David Brooks. I googled it, yeah. (laughs) (laughs) Thank you for that. Of course. So for anyone that wants it, for anyone that stuck with us this far, The Road to Character (laughs) by David Brooks. The Road to Character, that's it, yeah. We'd love to just close here and let you get at least some sleep for your day tomorrow. (laughs) Your hospital needs you, but it's been an honor to speak with you and learn about the incredible scope of the practice that you've done as a perfusionist and what you're achieving there in Kenya. The only word for it is groundbreaking, right? (laughs) They didn't have it. You broke ground on it, but it's really incredible. And it's opened up my mind a lot to what my journey in perfusion could possibly look like later on in some of the unique experiences that I could chase after and make it more meaningful than just clocking in and doing a case and going home. So thank you for that. Yeah, it's interesting, Mel. I never set a goal of writing so many papers or doing so much, and it just stuff that came right in front of me, and it's just been amazing. It's been incredibly easy when whenever problems and opportunities are right in front of you and you just you just do it when you know it's the right thing to do you just do it and then one day you look back and you think oh that was that's pretty cool (laughs) Bob I just want to chime in and say thank you so much for for being this honorable leader the selfless leader in our field I'm definitely about to start my Monday on the highest note so (laughs) I appreciate your mentorship. Mel and I both appreciate it. And I really hope that our listeners do as well. Hands down, (laughs) they will love this episode and appreciate your time. For people that want to learn more about Tenwick Hospital and its mission, we will include some links, including a donation link in our show notes um, so that people can have access to that for this episode. Thank you. Thank you for spreading the word. It's been delightful. You guys make it really easy, and you did an incredible amount of research. And when I looked on that Google Drive thing, I'm like, wow, look at this stuff. <laughs> this is great. This is great. All my, my favorite stuff, the stuff I'm most proud of. And it just touches my heart that you identified that as things you wanted to talk about. So thank you. It's been a real pleasure. And I wish you a good Sunday and a good Monday tomorrow. And let's stay in touch. That's a wrap for this episode, your source for all things perfusion. If you have any questions, comments, or topics you'd like us to cover, please send us an email at pumpcasters 
at gmail.com. Don't forget to subscribe so that you never miss an episode. Until next time, keep the blood flowing and an eye on your level. From the latest techniques to the biggest challenges and trends, we cover it all on Pump, the perfusion podcast that never misses a beat.